If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. And I'm Sue Wingrove, deputy editor. Coming up in this podcast... Jane Seymour is the queen that delivers in more ways than one. That was Brett Dolman, curator of the new Hampton Court exhibition on Henry VIII's wives. You need to see a far more of a tragedy, far more of a cock-up, far more of a series of mistakes than necessarily some sort of premeditated act of murder. And that was Nick Lloyd will be giving us his new assessment of the Butcher of Amritsar. Now more on those matters imminently. But first, let me beg your forbearance to remind you that this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, which this month is a Henry VIII 500th anniversary special. Aside from that, an Amritsar, we've got Nazi gold, Match Girls on Strike... Francis Bacon, Cook versus Peary in the race to the North Pole, and scrotal transplant surgery 100 years ago. That's all in the April issue of the magazine, which I'm sure you'd enjoy, but you are, of course, welcome to just listen to the podcast. Now, I'd be very interested to know where you're all listening from, though. If you've got time, just tell me where you are from via Twitter. We're at twitter.com forward slash BBC History Mag. It would be instructive to know where our audience is in the world. And thanks to all of you who got back to me about the audio quality last month. We're going to see if we can encourage our historian interviewees to get Skype for the interviews. Any other thoughts or comments, do email me direct at davemusgrove at bbcmagazinesbristol.com. Now, as Dave says, BBC History Magazine is produced by BBC Magazines in the UK. It comes out monthly and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in the podcast. Now, it's 500 years since Henry VIII acceded to the throne. That means there's a whole host of Henriana going on, including a new exhibition at Hampton Court on the women in his life, specifically showcasing six paintings of Henry's wives. Dave talked to the curator Brett Dolman about the rarely seen wifely portraits that are the stars of this show. You'd have thought it wouldn't be that hard a job to find a portrait of Henry VIII's wives, but that's not quite the case, is it? So did you have quite a lot of delving to do to find the six portraits for this exhibition? Well, it's certainly not easy to get a complete set of Henry's wives. Um, they don't exist in the Royal Collection, who are the, the people that we go to first. Um, 
they own the collection that decorates most of Hampton Court Palace. Um, and if you start to think about it, then there are reasons why Henry VIII wouldn't hold on to portraits of his wives, particularly those that he'd had executed. Um, I mean, certainly if you look at history books, you've got some fairly good candidates for portraits of, of Henry's wives that decorate the pages therein. But once you start to delve a bit further, you realize that some of these aren't contemporary likenesses at all or um, in many instances the actual identity of the sitter and the portraits completely open to question um, there's just so very there's very few fixed points um, in the history of Tudor portraiture very few portraits are identified um, with any degree of clarity or documented and most of it's you know, art historical supposition I mean apart from the documented Holbein portraits of Anne of Cleves and Jane Seymour, there's, there's very little um, definite out there. And we were quite keen, actually, to get beyond um, the well-known images, the ones that decorate the history books, in order also just to challenge people's preconceptions a bit as well. Um, and also to along the way we were discovering that there were these paintings that existed particularly in private collections that that weren't put on public view very often so we thought that was the the best way to go so taking that point further for for two of, of the most famous queens Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard the the two beheaded queens we can't be completely sure that we know what they look like at all can we absolutely not so, I mean not through um, portraiture uh, as I said if you think about it there's once they've been executed, there's absolutely no reason, certainly, for Henry VIII to keep a portrait of either Anne or, or Catherine. And um, for a courtier, who may have at some point commissioned a, a copy of, a, of um, the portrait of the, of the latest royal wife, it would have been inappropriate for them, um, or even treasonable, to keep a portrait of Anne or Catherine on the walls. Um, and also what you discover when you start looking into this is that whilst you think you know what Anne Boleyn looks like, because there are so many seemingly so many portraits of her, all of these images, these famous images of Anne in a, in a stylish French headdress with a bee pendant necklace, um, all of those that have been dated come from the late 16th century at least. Um, in other words, they're from a period when her daughter Elizabeth I was on the throne and people um, were resurrecting her, her career, if you like, or trying to find an image of her. One art historian, though, has recently suggested that these images of Anne are actually taken not from a supposed lost um, likeness of her from her own lifetime, but actually from a, a portrait of Henry's sister, Mary Tudor, um, where the B necklace, incidentally, would stand for Brandon rather than Berlin. Um, whether that's true or not, what it does show you is that um, we don't have a definitive portrait of Anne from her lifetime. The only one that exists is actually um, on a coin or a medal um, minted in 1534 that's hardly a likeness at all. And for Catherine, the situation's even worse. Um, because she didn't have a daughter that came to the throne. So there aren't even any later 16th century portraits um, on which to hang a supposed lost original on. Um, there are some portraits that are meant to be of Catherine, but there is certainly no general agreement um, across art historians or historians as to whether we've actually found one or not. There could be other people too. Um, and I think this is quite important because people do 
look for some sort of insight into who these people were, particularly these evocative historic figures of the two executed queens, um, through portraiture. We're a very visual culture these days. We need to know what people look like as if as if by knowing that we can find out a little bit about them. You know, you'd hear people say, oh, you can see what sort of person she was like just by looking at a portrait. Um, that's, I don't think, very true with Tudor portraiture, which which wasn't on that sort of level yet. But irrespective of that, it's it's really interesting how you see these late 16th century images of Anne sort of um, kind of pre or rather sort of predetermine how Anne looks like or how people think she was all the way through the history of film, for example, as well. Um, but we really don't know. There are some descriptions of what these people look like, but they're a bit vague as well. Um, you know, Anne is either uh, eulogized by people that liked her or, or fairly sort of um, rigorously slagged off by people that, that didn't. Even a friend calls her good-looking enough. And it's just a perennial mystery what's fascinated Henry about these, these two women um, when we know that it was something that they had about them rather than necessarily the way they looked like. But we still want a portrait. We still feel we need that. So we're going to have portraits of Anne and Catherine in our exhibition. Um, but both of them are open to some debate as to whether they are true likenesses or not. Um, it's possibly an act of, of sort of dangerous sedition to hang on to your, your portrait of, of Anne Boleyn after, after she was gone. Um, but another possibility would be to doctor an existing portrait to make it more palatable, which seems to be what's happened to the portrait of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, that you've got in the exhibition. It, it's been changed um, as, as the state of that royal marriage has gone on, hasn't it? It does seem to be the case that this portrait of Catherine of Aragon is doing this rare thing um, in portraiture of this time, which is to carry with it a fairly direct message, if a sort of slightly subtly alluded to one in this case. What you have is a portrait of, of Catherine looking similar to other portraits of Catherine from the 1530s. Um, in this one, she has a pet monkey. Again, that's not unique. There's another little picture that looks very similar. But in the original picture, the monkey is just being offered a peanut. In this painting, in our exhibition, the monkey is being offered a coin, but is instead reaching out for the crucifix that hangs around Catherine's neck. And what this seems to be, um, quite clearly, is an is a, a absolutely um, definite change on the part of presumably the commissioner of the copy of the portrait, um, probably a supporter of Catherine as she was facing um, going through the divorce crisis at the end of the 1520s into the early 1530s. And the message of the painting seems to be you know, that Catherine believed absolutely in the sanctity of her marriage to Henry VIII, um, rather than the the promise, the reward being offered by Henry to buy her off, if you like, to go away quietly and to accept the annulment. Um, and this, I should say, is a painting that's actually been dated um, through dendrochronology, and we, we, at the moment, have it as being the earliest known panel portrait of Catherine as queen to survive. So not only is it a, is it a sort of changed portrait, but it's actually earlier than um, some of the other copies of the portraits of Catherine of Aragon that, that exist in collections um, around the country. Okay, now um, there's, there's the famous story about Henry being shocked at the ugliness of his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, when he first met her because she didn't match up to the portrait he'd seen of her. Now, I think what you're saying from the portrait that you've got is that that, that story is um, either apocryphal or, or just not true. I think most of it's certainly apocryphal. Um, this idea that Anne of Cleves, the, the Flanders mare, as she was called much later um, by historians, um, 
this idea that you know that Holbein painted a portrait that was beautiful, that Henry fell in love with the portrait, that when the real thing arrived, he was incredibly disappointed, is is mostly a manufactured myth. Um, firstly, it goes against the the main function of portraiture at this period, which was to record a likeness. It wasn't to idealise the sitter. Um, portraits were commissioned um, because of um, the impossibility of knowing what people looked like from a distance. Ambassadors um, used grand word pictures in their, in their letters to try and conjure up the description of a, or the image of a person. And good court portraitists like Holbein were dispatched to record faithful images. Um, also, to do with this story, most of the negative descriptions of what Anne looked like are mostly um, emerged towards the end of Henry's marriage in July 1540. Um, some of this evidence that's produced for the annulment of the marriage is, is backdated um, in other words, you know, people are saying that Henry, when he first saw her, thought that she was terrible. But there's not actually a lot of evidence for that. There's actually other descriptions of her that, that are, are quite complementary. Um, the main point behind all of this is that the reason why the marriage unraveled was as much to do with politics as it was to do with, if you like, cultural differences. Um, there was a rumor that Anne was pre-contracted to marry the, the son and heir of the Duke of Lorraine. And the last thing Henry VIII actually wanted was a another questionable marriage um any heirs would have been you know therefore uh open to questions to whether they were legitimate or not um and also henry likes to choose his own wives um anne of Cleves is the exception all of the other wives henry seeks out um pretty much all of them were either ladies in waiting to um the previous queen um so they were around at court henry would have got to know them um or in the case of Catherine of Aragon, she'd obviously been around for a long time. Henry had known her since childhood. Um, and in Catherine Parr's case, um, she was uh, a lady-in-waiting in, in um, her stepdaughter's household, Princess Mary, um, before Henry selected her. And in fact, there's these descriptions from um, the French ambassador that, uh, that complains when Henry's looking for a wife in 1538, 1539. You know, would he prefer that we lined them all up naked at Calais for him to inspect? But... I think Henry would have quite enjoyed that, and Henry certainly liked selecting. And yet, in this case, he wouldn't have met Anne of Cleves until a week before they were married. There were cultural differences, and this clearly was an issue. Um, but also, I think that it was to do with Henry's reluctance to get involved with somebody whose um, legitimacy as a marriage partner was open to question, particularly when the political climate in Europe changed and the need for this sort of political alliance had gradually dissipated. Um, and finally, because then he did get his head turned by somebody who was at court um, in the young and nubile shape of Catherine Howard. So that's really what happened. Um, the portrait, on the other hand, is actually that rare thing, a real likeness um, of an identified sitter um, and shouldn't be dismissed as anything other than that. There's one queen for whom we are well stocked with portraits. Um, and is that just a simple fact of, of that she was the only queen to bear Henry a, a son who lived beyond infancy? I think that's absolutely the reason. Um, Jane Seymour is the queen that delivers in more ways than one. She's for this stellar achievement in giving Henry the, the son and heir that he, he desires and that explains his complicated matrimonial history. Um, she is rewarded in life and in death. Um, you know, her portrait's painted by Holbein. It's much copied, as presumably at the time all of the queen's portraits were copied, but it survives. Um, people don't take it down off the walls, even when Henry's married to his next three wives, because she is the heir to the throne's mother. Um, more than that, 
at the end of the reign, when Henry's married to Catherine Parr, Henry commissions these complicated family portraits, these dynastic statements of, of Tudor power and legitimacy. And in them, he puts himself center stage, obviously, um, with Edward, his heir, um, to one side, and it's Jane that appears on Henry's other side, not Catherine Parr, not Henry's current wife, but the mother of the heir to the throne. Um, and this is you know, quite important, and her badges remain on, a, on the palaces long after she's died as well, and her family's influence remains at court um, throughout um, the first part of Edward VI's reign too. She is the, the, you know, the Tudor Rose that, that delivered for Henry when all of the other wives failed. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. That was Brett Dolman, curator of the exhibition Henry's Women, which is now on at Hampton Court and it's lasting until the 3rd of August. You can see the portraits in question in Brett's feature, which is in the April issue of the magazine. Now, here's some subscription information. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before 28th of April 2009 will receive a fantastic free book worth £25. Subscribe today and we'll send you a copy of David Starkey's Henry, a Virtuous Prince, absolutely free. Plus, you'll save a pound on every issue of the magazine, so that works out at just £2.60 an issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. Alternatively, you can call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD112. If you're listening to this podcast outside the UK, you'll be pleased to learn you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus 44 1795 44728 for more details. Thanks for that, Sue. Now, let's go on to one of the most contentious moments in the history of British India. When, in 1919, in the Punjab city of Amritsar, troops under the command of Brigadier General Reginald Dyer 
opened fire on a crowd of protesters. They killed 379 and wounded over 1,000. Nick Lloyd is lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College London. He has been re-examining Dyer's actions. And BBC History magazine features editor Rob Attar caught up with him to inquire about his findings. Could you briefly describe for our listeners the events of the 13th of April 1919? What we have in India in April 1919 is a difficult situation where you have the growth of political discontent with a variety of things that I talk about in the article, the um, so-called roller bills which come in which extend government powers to arrest people who are suspected of revolution crimes. And this, of course, is the great Mahatma Gandhi is involved in a protest movement. But this spills out of control in a number of places in India, particularly in Amritsar. We have a number of Europeans killed, buildings are burned, and we have essentially a race riot. Civilian authorities basically abandon control and they don't know what to do and they're fearing that a huge mob, a huge crowd will come out of the city, wipe them away and then will be another mutiny like that of 1857 on their hands. So 13th of April is three days after the riot. The riot occurs on the 10th of April. The civilian authorities still have not got control of the city. The rest of the Punjab, this important province in northern India, is also suffering a lot of unrest. Um, telegraph wires are being cut, trains are being derailed huge crowds are gathering elsewhere in the province. So for the authorities, it's very dangerous and they very much feel that they are losing control and they don't really know what to do. They have spent a number of occasions in the previous two days trying to spread word in the city that all gatherings are banned because obviously they fear that if gatherings and huge crowds angry at the political situation come together, then they might get violent. On the 13th of April, the military commander, Brigadier General Reginald Dyer, who's known throughout history as the Butcher of Amritsar, goes through the city in the morning, uh, where he stops at a variety of places in the old town of Amritsar, speaks in the local languages and also distributes leaflets saying, all meetings, all huge gatherings are banned. If you do so, we will fire upon you. And this gets to about lunchtime. Everyone is very tired. Obviously, the sun is up. They've been doing this for a number of hours, so... Dyer feels that, feels that enough is enough. He has to go back to his headquarters outside of the city walls. So he does that. He gets back about one o'clock. It's a quiet afternoon. Nobody really knows what's going on. Everyone is very tired and not had much sleep for a few days. And they're just waiting on events, cautiously watching, trying to find out what is happening elsewhere in the province. When Dyer receives word about four o'clock from one of his police officers, Mr. Rahill, deputy superintendent, comes to him and tells him that a huge meeting is, is gathering in the city. Now, they had heard rumours that something would happen. They'd heard rumours of a gathering, of a great meeting. But Dyer doesn't seem to have taken them very seriously because he feels that his warning is going to be enough. And anyway, at this point, there's lots of rumours going around, um, not just the city, but also the Punjab about different things that are happening. So it's very difficult to actually accept that. But Mr. Rahel tells Dyer that he's received word that this meeting is definitely going ahead and that about a 1,000 people have gathered. So Dyer then decides that he's got to go back into the city. He's got to go and disperse this crowd. He gathers a party of about 90 men, mainly Gurkhas, but also one of the other Indian hill tribes, the Baluchis, only 50 of which are armed with rifles. And then he proceeds to march to the, the garden where the meeting is gathering, a place called the Janianwalabag. Dyer gets there. It takes about an hour to gather everyone and move through, move back into the city, dropping off pickets and guardians troops at certain points in the town. And he reaches the guard about 10 past 5, and where indeed a political meeting has been taking place for about three hours. He walks up the narrow entrance to the garden. He's never been here before, so he's a little unsure of what to expect. There is only one main entrance and exit. He goes into that exit. As he does that, of course, he blocks it from, from people 
who want to leave. He moves up the entrance and, of course, he finds actually the situation in the garden is far worse than, than anything he'd imagined. You have a huge crowd gathered there, far bigger than he'd imagined. It's somewhere between 20, maybe even 30,000 people. And he also notices that he sees very few women or very few children, mostly men. And he believes that this is a very bad situation. And he seems to, if not panic, then certainly feel that there isn't really anything he can do. There's so many of them. They're gathered there. They almost look like they're ready and waiting for him. So he decides that he can do no more. So he orders the men in and they open fire. And this continues for over five minutes. And we have um, huge slaughter in the garden. Perhaps as many as 400 people are killed, maybe 1,000 wounded. One of the problems, of course, is that people can't get out because there are no exits. There are some points the sides of the garden, which is about six or seven acres in size, where people can struggle out if they climb the walls. But, of course, this takes time, and you can't get hundreds of people going over the walls one at a time. It seems that Dyer feels that because people rush to the sides in order to get out, he feels they're trying to outflank him. They're trying to get round his men. So he directs fire upon these points, which, of course, increase the casualty rate even further. After about six or seven minutes, Dyer feels that most of the crowd have dispersed. They've either got over the walls or they're hiding or they're trying to escape by jumping in the well. There is in the garden feels that he's done enough, so he leaves. What was the impact of this massacre on Anglo-Indian relations? It's a disaster, really. I mean, it's, it's one of these episodes that rapidly becomes much bigger than the incident itself and becomes a question of how Britain should rule India, whether Britain should rule India by the sword, whether Britain should rule India by goodwill. Because also at the same time, you have government reforms coming into place, Montague Chelmsford reforms that aim to bring more Indians into the administration in order to butcher British rule to gain more legitimacy, essentially. So this um, massacre comes at the worst moment, particularly after the official investigation interviews Dyer. And he makes a number of statements about what his motives were for acting on that day that proved really a, a propaganda disaster for the British and a propaganda gift to the nationalist movement who were able to use this testimony and say that Dyer is brutal and he's an epitome of all that British, the British are doing in India. So it sours relations for, for a long time and is, is used very skillfully by the Indian nationalist movement as a rallying call. And it, in some ways it destroys any attempt to justify the British position in India because people will always say, well, what about Amritsar? So in this inquiry, Dyer made it seem as if the murders were actually premeditated. Yes, his initial reports when he returns from the garden are very much that I feared that if I hesitated, they would attack me. So it's very much in response to what he finds. So he fires in order to disperse the crowd because he feels there's no way he can parley with them, there's no way he can disperse that amount of people without firing. When he appears before the inquiring, it's quite a different story. He talks about how he knew what he was doing, how he wanted to fire to strike terror into the people of Amritsar and the Punjab, and how it was a premeditated act of murder, that he knew what he was doing and he had to do it, and he justifies his actions on the grounds that there was a rebellion in the Punjab, he had to put it down severely, and that he was right in doing this. Now, a number of writers subsequently have said he was, but this remains a point of a lot of contention, and, and most right have argued that actually his actions were not justified. And of course, they went against the British rule of minimum force, which means that you just have to fire to disperse a crowd and not to inflict any kind of lesson or punishment upon them. Of course, this is what Dyer claims he did before the inquiry. He changed his story then. Why do you think he did that? 
It's uh, probably a number of things. He could never admit that he panicked or he got it wrong or he'd been surprised. And I think if you look at the inquiry, he's asked a number of very leading questions from the lawyers and from the, from the people who are asking him the questions, and it becomes a very political inquiry, as you'd expect. They ask him all sorts of leading questions, and, and he's not the type of man to back down from that, and he probably feels his actions were justified. So he starts talking about why he meant to do it, and he meant to give the people a lesson. And I think by this time, he's become a sort of hero for many Anglo-Indians and the right wing of the conservative establishment in the UK who regard Dyer as being a hero who put down a rebellion, therefore his actions were right. And of course, he can't really disappoint them. He can't really say to them, well, sorry, I made a mistake, for his own pride more than anything else. He's a very proud man. He's a man that would see himself as a great figure, a great hero of India. And his early motivations, the early motives, become distorted by what happens after. And then he maintains that he knew exactly what he, he was doing. What I argue is actually, if you look at what happens on the day, it's very difficult to maintain that Dyer knows what he's doing and that he plans it. I think that's very unlikely. You think we need to reevaluate the massacre? Absolutely. I think we need to look again at what happened on the day, look again at Dyer's character, and actually look again at some of the problems with the inquiry, some of the problems with Dyer's testimony before it. Most writers have relied on this testimony before the inquiry as being the definitive version of what happens, and I don't think that it is. I think that Dyer's testimony before the inquiry is flawed, it is distorted, his motivations do change, therefore to rely on it is not necessarily going to give us more of an understanding about why he fires in the Janianwala bag on the 13th of April. Do you think he still does deserve his reputation as a butcher of Amritsar? It is unlikely that he will suddenly become a hero of many people. It's, it's likely that his reputation will remain very dark, very black. And in some respects, because he changed his mind, because he started talking about striking terror, he's almost condemned more for what he says than necessarily for what he does. So I think it's unlikely that his reputation will undergo any great change. What I argue is actually you need to see a far more of a tragedy, far more of a cock-up, far more of a series of mistakes than necessarily some sort of premeditated act of murder. I don't think I planned it, and I think that's where I differ from the traditional view of the massacre. Why did he make these mistakes? Did the events catch him off guard then? He has very little intelligence on what's going on in the city. Most of the intelligence agents they do have have run for their lives on the 10th of April with the riot. They do have some European agents in the city, but they don't have a, a lot of knowledge. But in some ways, it is a failure of intelligence. They don't really know what's going on in the city. They have vague rumors, they have vague reports. And in some respects, he doesn't believe they will challenge his authority. He doesn't believe that they will gather in like, a big meeting. He doesn't really know Amritsar very well, and he's initially posted to another part of the Punjab. He comes to Amritsar after the 10th of April. He doesn't really know the town very well. He doesn't know the Janianwala Park, certainly not the geography of the garden. And he's surprised by what he finds there, by the huge numbers of people that have gathered. And I think that's one of the reasons why he feels there's actually nothing he can do and he has to fire. And of course, when firing starts or hell breaks loose, huge crowds, clouds of dust are pushed up. It gets very loud. He sees people moving to the left of him, to the right of him. He feels they're going to attack him, so he fires. And one of the problems is that the people can't disperse because they can't get out of the garden. Of course, Dyer doesn't know there are no exits, so he keeps firing because they're not dispersing. And I think that's where we have a series of mistaken assumptions, we have a series of intelligence failures, and we have the unfortunate geography of the garden, which means that had the crabs been able to leave, um, had there been a very big exit, say, towards the back of the garden, people would have left pretty quickly, and the casualty rate would have been that much lower. But because they can't do that, Dyer doesn't know that he keeps firing. I think that's where the tragedy of this event lies.
Finally, do you expect the article you've written to be quite controversial? I would expect so. I think this period, not just the massacre, but everything that the British do in 1919 in the Punjab, the period of martial law, also the incident in a number of other places, Delhi, Lahore, Vidranwala, Kassur. These incidents have gone down in Indian national myth as a unique act of barbarity and repression and terrorism by the British authorities. And any attempt to revise that is likely to get a hostile reception. But what I think we need to do is look again at these key incidents and treat them less hysterically and try and actually understand a bit more about the British response. It's not all about terrorism and a desire to inflict fear on their Indian subordinates. Often what they do is just a simple reaction to try and preserve life and property and the fact that there is very little they can do when they have huge crowds gathering that are threatening to either burn large buildings in the city or, or kill them. So often they fire simply to protect life. It's not about repression. It's not about terrorism. And I think so many historians should know better. So many historians have treated these incidents and treated the key characters as sort of black and white cutouts of being evil imperialists. And actually the situation, the real story is a lot more complex. It's a lot more grey, if you will. And I hope that, if anything, this article and the other work that I'm preparing for publication will reignite the debate on 1919, be able to see it in a bigger context, in a wider context, and get away from this unhelpful, very simplistic condemnation of all that the British do in 1919. This is not to justify the violence that does take place, it's an attempt to understand it. And again, if some people find that painful or offensive, then, then I'm sorry, but nationalist myths will take some knocking down, and I'm, I'm not sure this article will do it. These myths are very stubborn, and they're built for a political agenda, and, and I think that's probably where I'll get some flack. You can read Nick Lloyd's feature in the April issue of the magazine. That brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. For more on these topics, plus all our other features, do look out for the April issue. You might also want to check out our website, where you can subscribe, buy recommended history books through our BBC History bookstore, or download previous podcasts. The address is www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And finally, do keep your eyes peeled for our special Historic Days Out magazine, which features ideas for 244 historic places in the UK that you could visit this summer. It's only on sale in WH Smith's in the UK for £5.99, and it's got a glorious photo of Urquhart Castle on the shores of Loch Ness on the cover. So that's called Historic Days Out. And next month we'll be podcasting on Sutton Who, Engels and a Nazi serial killer. I hope you'll join us again for that.